0: All right, you may be seated. So this is our, our last um, message, our last time together in our one word series, which means I get the final word, which is kind of awesome. So, and the final word this week is worship. And so we're going to take some time this morning to talk about the word worship as it kind of unfolds in the scriptures. And so... Uh, when we got together as a worship planning team, we meet every week, evaluate and try and create and, and think of ways to to um, uh, bring the message home and kind of make it clear and all that. Uh, we batted around a bunch of ideas and I remembered that for years my wife had said to me, why don't you do an acapella service? You know, And so I kind of blurted that out in the middle of our meeting. And so that's why there's no band this week, which means at some point, It probably need to do just an instrument service where there's no singers and the band just leads us. I know it'll be weird, but we'll try it. And so, so we just wanted to uh, mix it up a little bit, uh, change it around a little bit because we tend to be creatures of habit and then assume that whatever we're doing that's it, we got it, no one else has got it, okay? So that's, that's the difference here, and we're just using our voices, and so it's been great worshiping with all of you already this morning. So uh, if you don't have some notes, I'll encourage you to grab some. We're going through a lot of stuff today, um, and it'll help you stay awake. I know that's what it does for me, so if that helps you, go grab some. There's some in the back. And uh, here's the big picture, or if your last name is Jankowski, the central truth. Worship is about the sound of your life, not the sound of your voice. Worship is about the sound of your life, not the sound of your voice. That is the big picture. That is the central truth. And if you leave with nothing else... Grab that one and kind of begin to live it out. So we're going to look at worship before creation. And as we've done lots of times in the series, when we've kind of identified one word and begin to trace it, we went all the way back to Genesis. In fact, we went all the way back to God, the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So that's where we're going to start as we're addressing the word worship, because we can't talk about worship without talking about the Trinity, and in turn, without talking about we are without talking about ourselves in light of who God has revealed himself to be. So we've noted other times in our series that God is love and God has revealed himself as the tri-unity. We learn as we examine the Trinity that the essence of God in three persons, blessed Trinity, the essence of God in the Trinity is relationship, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons who enjoy love, intimacy, purity, holiness, beauty, perfect union, perfect unity within the Trinity. So the question comes, what makes God happy? What does God delight in? All right. And in your notes, uh, I have this. John Piper answers that question this way. He answered it by saying, the chief end of God is to glorify God and enjoy himself forever. The chief end of God is to glorify God and enjoy himself forever. That's from his book entitled Desiring God. I think I put a link in the notes for it for you. John Piper reminds us of the glory that God takes in himself. That God delights in himself. Because if God were to delight in anyone or anything else... God would not be, God would not be, he would not be God, right? Why would we want to worship, pledge our allegiance to a God who worships and takes delight in something else? Okay, you're tracking with me so far? I know you're like, what seminary class did I just sign up for? Okay, so we we want to talk about the Trinity as as we're kind of dealing with this whole idea of worship. So um, God delights in himself. He's utterly complete within himself. He has no deficiencies of any kind. He's not lacking in any way. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up, because it's so important. Because in the mystery and wonder of Genesis 1 and 2, this God, this Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and Holy Spirit, who has no needs whatsoever, complete, utterly complete in himself, in Genesis 1 and 2, he creates. This God who doesn't need anything, who's complete, creates. He creates the universe. He creates mankind. Why? Why? Why would this God who transcends time and space create time and space? The moon, the stars, sun, and everything else he created right to the apex of creation, man and woman. Why would he do this? Harold Best wrote a book called Unceasing Worship. Okay? So keep your brains open. Keep your brains open for a few more minutes at least. And uh, he used to be the director of the conservatory at Wheaton College. And he wrote a book entitled Unceasing Worship. And this is how he identifies God. He identifies God as the uniquely continuous outpourer. Okay? I know, that's like crazy words for 8 o'clock. The uniquely continuous outpourer. So get your imaginations turning here. The idea of unique, that's not hard to contemplate. Continuous, obviously, kind of that never-ending. And then he uses this word outpourer, you know, which would be the opposite of like a drip. A drip would be a drop. A space, a drop, a space. He's very specific. God is the uniquely continuous outpourer. So here comes the quote put your seatbelts on. This is how he describes the Trinity, God, the continuous outpourer. Even before he chooses to create and before he chooses to reveal himself beyond himself, he eternally pours himself out to his triune self in unending fellowship ceaseless conversation and immeasurable love and infinity of the same okay quiz put your papers down let's okay in other words what he's saying is within the trinity god endlessly gives of himself to himself okay i know brain exploding Okay, are you tracking with me a little bit? As we're we're going to talk about worship in some more practical ways, but we have to start with who God is. There's there's within the Trinity this endless capacity for God to pour out of himself to himself love, power, majesty, strength, okay? It's endless. God is this uniquely continuous outpourer and he can't help but pour out of himself to himself. God put it this way when he spoke to Moses. I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. This most holy name of God speaks of his unchanging character. He's totally other, self-existent. The word translated I am can also be understood and translated as I will be, as in the phrase I will be near you or be with you. So God reveals himself to Moses as I am, the continuous outpourer, if you will. Self-existent, pre-existent, outside of time, outside of space. And he also reveals himself to Moses and to you and to me as I am. I will be with you. He is uncreated. He is not dependent on anything else for his own existence. So back to our question, why did he create? Why did he create? He didn't create because he had a need, because he was bored, because there was something missing, but he created because God is love, the scriptures teach us. And the basic building block of love is giving. Love is not love until it is expressed. So he doesn't create out of need, but as a gift of the Trinity to itself, God decides to create the universe out of his holy, grace-filled, perfect love. It's a gift to himself, from himself, and also a gift to everything he has made. All right? Now, why is this important? All right, so we get a little bit more practical here. Worship before the fall. Part of what it it means then to be created in his image is that you and I were created continuously outpouring. In fact, uh, Harold Best entitles the chapter, Nobody Does Not Worship. Nobody does not worship. We are not created to worship as if God needs us to worship or is not complete until we give him worship. But we were created as image bearers of God, continuously outpouring. That is what we bear as we reflect the image of God. We must pour out of ourselves give ourselves to something. So he entitles the chapter, nobody does not worship, all right? In the garden, Adam and Eve are given life-giving words. They're given instruction. They're giving loving words from God, beautiful words from God, so they would know how to relate to their creator. They would know how to worship him equals obey him, as God gave him those words. So remember, we've talked about this before. Adam and Eve, God didn't create little gods. Okay, I'm going to create these little, little gods, and they could be little gods beneath, you know, me, the big God. No, he created man and woman. And Adam and Eve were created to kind of join in that dance, join in the song, if you will, of the Trinity, join in and worship and be a part of what the Trinity had already been enjoying for eternity past. Love, intimacy, fellowship, beauty, unity. So God spills out because he's the outpourer. He creates man and woman and they are here to join in delighting in their creator. So they are like God as you and I are like God as we reflect his image. But Adam and Eve are categorically different from their creator because Adam and Eve, just like you and I, have a capacity to choose to love and serve and delight in God, or to choose not to love and serve and delight in God. And of course, the other way of saying that is Adam and Eve are created with the capacity to obey God or to disobey God. So when Adam and Eve sinned, the human race was changed forever, and then ever since the fall. Adam and Eve, you and I, and everybody ever created is trying to get back to the garden. We want to try and find our true selves. We want to get back to that place. In fact, God in the scriptures placed a flaming sword and an angel guarding the tree of life. They were not to return to the garden. He must have known that that's what they would want to do in their fallen state, partake of the tree of life, never die and be in that fallen state forever. But we want to get back to the garden and find our truer selves and eternity with God in union with God, worshiping God, reflecting fully the image that he's placed in us. Now, saying that everybody worships doesn't mean that everybody's worship is acceptable to God. But it is true that every person ever made must continuously outpour to something. And we will. In fact, we'll do anything. We will do anything to try and get back to the garden. But sin disfigures our attempts to be reconciled to God. We want to be our own God, and we want to worship ourselves, just like our parents, if you will, Adam and Eve. Because the serpent said to Eve, you know, God's holding back. He's lying. Go ahead and do this. Because if you do, what does the serpent say? You will be just like God. And that's the very same temptation that you and I face, the whole world faces. So, we call it addictions. Oh, someone's addicted to this. Someone's addicted to that. But all of our behavior from a spiritual standpoint in some way is an expression of our continuous outpouring. And sin twists that, that part of our image. And so, we will give ourselves. So, I might decide that this iPad, oh this iPad. If I give myself to this iPad, I'm back in the garden. And so we will find what we think in our mind, we decide up here will grant us that life. That's what we'll center our world around. iPad of life. You came from Cupertino. We're going to write songs about the iPad. We're going to have conferences that help us to learn about the iPad. We're going to read everything if we can about the iPad. And we're going to center our lives around this iPad. Because we are created continuous outpours. We must give ourselves to something. And outside of the grace of God, we're going to give ourselves to anything that we decide will make us closer to the garden, give us our truest self, bring us back to something that's transcendent, right? Now, if you read Romans 1, 18 to 32, you read about this culture that we're in, you also will read about what happens when the continuous outpours that we are worship themselves and apart from God, how worship is twisted, how that continuous outpouring is turned inside We worship ourselves, our desires, our wants, our appetites. And Romans 1, 18 to 32 is a very stark description of what we see in our culture and what's been happening for millennia when people decide to move away from God and create their own gods, be it coffee, which is one of my gods, I love it, and iPad and everything else. So, summary, God didn't create us to worship. He does not need our worship. Continuous outpouring is how we were created. Everybody worships. Not all worship is acceptable to God. For sin stains all of our efforts to get back to God. But we must do something as continuous outpours and give ourselves to something. And that explains spiritually a lot of our wrong behavior and certainly a lot of the struggles that many of us have. So, uh, interaction time. What's worship? Nice and loud shout out. If someone were to say to you, so, what's worship? Like I just did, you would say to shout out. But not, praising God, I heard, okay. Huh? Outpouring of, Outpouring of God. Thank you, Ken. Yeah, very good. Who else? Not a trick question. <laughs> what's, what's worship? Praising, okay. Singing, thanks, Kim. Surrender, someone said surrender hard. Is that what I heard? Yeah, very good. Surrender, yeah, very good. Love? How about work? How about work as an act of worship? How about love? How about loving your spouse, your neighbor, as an act of worship? How about service? Whatever that looks like. Whatever that looks like. Food pantry, cutting your neighbor's lawn, you know, whatever. Any kind of service. What if we decided to offer everything we do as an act of worship to God? Okay. Any others? What's worship? How about being nice to your sister or brother? (laughs) Or to that nutty coworker <laughs> that drives you crazy. Okay. Worship is not about the sound of your voice. It's about the sound of your life. It's about the sound of your life. So, in your notes, the English word worship comes from two old English words W E O R T H, worth, which means worth, W O R T H, and "shape" or ship, which means something like shape or quality. So, worth and quality. So we say friendship or sportsmanship having the quality of a friend, having the quality of someone who is a good sport. Worship is the quality of having worth or being worthy. So the English word worship when we use that word what we're saying is God has worth, he is worthy and we want to declare that worth. We want to attribute worth to God. The biblical words for worship in both Hebrew and Greek, there are two major kinds of words for worship. The first kind means to bow down, to kneel. That one's, I think, in your notes. Bow down, to kneel, to, you know, prostrate oneself, to kind of face down. So it's kind of involves the body. You know, it's a physical response to God. I'm going to kneel, bow down, I'm going to put my face down to the ground as an act of respect, submission, obedience, you know, to what God says. So there's this physical definition in the Bible to worship that involves our body. And uh, the, uh, the other kind um, of biblical words means to serve. So that's the other meaning of the biblical word worship, to serve. So do something in response to what God tells us to do and move out into the world with that service. Roughly half of the times these words are translated as worship, the other half as serve. So they're very active definitions in the Bible for worship. You know, it's our body, it's what we're doing, and then it's what we're doing outside into, into this world, making a sacrifice and carrying out whatever God instructs us to do. Worship is not about the, sound, is about the sound of your life, not about the sound of your voice. So, as we look at the biblical meaning of worship, there is worship, this is also in your notes, there is um, worship that is giving praise upward. Whether we're singing or speaking, there's that intentional, I'm going to lift up my eyes to the hills from which my health comes, as the psalmist says. There's a worship that is receiving instructions from above. So we hear God. This is what Adam and Eve were given from God, instructions, instructions of love and grace and out of God's kindness. Okay, we, there's a worship that is receiving, listening with the mind, okay, from above. And there's a worship that carries out his instruction in the world around us. So we become obedient worshipers, okay? You can't disconnect God's word, God's commands from what it means to worship. So there is a worship that is giving praise upward. A worship that is receiving instructions from above, listening to God, heart, mind, and a worship that carries out instructions in the world around us. So Paul writes in Romans 12, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. You could also say, if you wanted to paraphrase it, which is your spiritual worship of worship, or which is your spiritual service of service. He's kind of using both meanings here. It's an active thing. It's not passive at all. And then he also brings in the idea of God's instruction, the word of God, obedience. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There is a worship that involves listening, the mind, understanding. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will, which is the New Testament counterpart To what God instructs us in Deuteronomy. Hear Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Well, how do we do that? These commandments, these words I give you today are to be upon your hearts impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Worship is not about the sound of your voice. It's about the sound of your life. The Old Testament and the New Testament affirm this again and again and again. And we don't, God does not need our worship. We are created, we must give ourselves to something apart from the grace of God. We'll give ourselves to anything that we think will get us back to some transcendent experience, our truest self. With the grace of God and the salvation that's offered in Christ, we can begin to move towards the garden. In obedience and trust to the Lord. So let's talk for a few moments about music then. Because we do a lot of singing and we, sometimes we've got the band and all that. So I wanted to just take a, a couple of minutes to note uh, music. And I'm um, going to play just snippets of some church music. This one, this music, at one time, it was like rockin'. If they had charts, number one, people could not wait to get the church to hear this. Triste Pretty cool, huh? That's a ninth and tenth century poem around those centuries. Jesus, the Father's only Son, whose death for all redemption won, before the worlds of God Most High, begotten all ineffably. The Father's light and splendor, thou, their endless hope to thee that bow. Accept the prayers and praise today that through the world thy servants pay. People hungered for that kind of music at one time. And then someone said, What, just the guys? one part? No harmony? I don't think so. Let's try the Renaissance. Okay, so this is what they ended up with. O oh, Savior, opening wide the gate of heaven to all below, our foes press on from every side. Thine aid supply, thy strength bestow. To thy great name be endless praise, immortal Godhead, one in three. Beautiful prayer set to that four-part polyphony, you know, unaccompanied. That at one time, oh my, can't wait to go to church because we're going to hear that music again, okay? And as uh, music continued to morph and, and, uh, and change, uh, it, it, it kind of got just bigger. By the time we get to the 1700s, uh, instruments are added, so it's no longer just the voices. And uh, elaborate um, compositions are made for choir, orchestras. And eventually music moved out of the church and became kind of a part of the public world in terms of concerts. So what started you know, as something that kind of was really with the church for centuries was the keeper of the arts and music and all of that. And it began to move out of the church at some point as it got more complex where then the skill level was really limited to those who had serious training and all that. So I wanted to play for you another piece. This is from uh, Johann Sebastian Bach. It was the last thing he wrote. It was finished uh, in 1749. And he was a Lutheran, but... At the end of his career as a musician, as a worship leader, organist, he wrote a mass, a Catholic mass, the liturgy of the cl- Catholic mass, which for centuries began with Kyrie Song, Christ song, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy. The liturgy for centuries was lined out, and that's how it began. I can remember as a child growing up in the Catholic expression of the faith, saying, saying throughout the mass, you know, Lord have mercy. Christ, have mercy. So, Bach wrote, and if you've never heard the Bach B Minor Mass, that's your homework. Find a translation of it, just sit down and try and appreciate it. Here's the beginning of it, and just catch how he decided to, in music, create this corporate plea. It's not just, you know, this is, the prayer that he put to music is not, Lord, have mercy, Christ, have mercy. The prayer he put to music is like the entire world crying out to God, Lord, have mercy, Christ, Have mercy. And it sounds like this. Powerful. Get in front of some big speakers and turn it all the way up. Uh, in more recent modern times, music in the church has just gone through all kinds of changes and transformations and iterations and all that. Uh, what's wonderful about um, the time that we live in in recent uh, decades is the ability to have a personal expression to God, one that kind of comes right down to where we are in our hearts. So, this, I still love the song, but listen to this for a second. You can turn it up. I Yeah! I love that. Okay, love it, love it, love it. Um, Now, a modern composer by the name of David Crowder wrote a Requiem. The very last record that the David Crowder band released is actually a modern setting of the liturgical mass for the dead, requiem, give them eternal rest, O Lord. So just in case, you know, all that old music is just for the old people or all that older stuff and liturgical stuff is, you know, just for, I don't know, people who like that stuff. David Crowder, one of the leading, you know, composers, church musicians of contemporary Christian music, wrote a requiem, and this is how it starts. We're all albums, really. It's like two discs. It's a fantastic piece of music. But I just love that he reached backward and took some of the most ancient expressions of prayer and dependence upon God and just expressed it. So what's constant in all those? What's the same? In all those songs in different genres, what's the same? Praise, focus on God, right? Delight in God, reaching upward, looking upward, okay? And obviously, what's different? How it's expressed, all right? So that's why they change here this weekend. Worship is not just music. It's not the band. It's not how we do it. It's not how the Catholic Church over there does it. Or the method, you know, whatever. It's, a, it's about the song of your life. And ever since the garden, that's what it's been. And it's closely tied to, intimately connected to the word of God. So that our obedience and understanding of the word is how we worship the Lord. You cannot disconnect the day-to-day, the moment-to-moment. So don't come to church to worship. Don't come to church to get your daily intake of Bible. You must worship the Lord when you, you know, the last song we sing this morning is going to be the first song of the rest of your worship life this week. It's just the first song that you're going to take out into Sunday afternoon, then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and all for the rest of the week. When you come back next week, you're going to express together as a family all that God has revealed to you and shown you in your time with the Lord, worshiping him at your work as you love your spouse, as you look at that sunset, as you ride your bike, you know, all those things given to glory to God. It's about the sound of your life. I wanted to mention two things, and then we'll sing some songs together. Worship and struggle. We don't talk a lot about this. 2 Samuel 1 tells the story of Hannah. She's barren. She's unable to have a child. And um, um, I've walked next to families where that's happened. That's never happened to us. I can't imagine. I have no clue whatsoever um, the, the difficulty a woman in that position would have in our culture, in the culture of 2 Samuel 1, for a woman to be barren. I mean, she was shunned, less than a human being. The pressure upon a woman who was barren. To just marginalize her and make her less than nothing it was enormous. And we hear the story of Hannah and she's made fun of by her husband's other wife and scorned. And so she is in a pitiful state and um, she worships God. And what does she do? She brings all of that heartache, all of that sorrow, all of her tears, all of the trouble in her life. That is what she offers to God as an expression of worship. So I left a bunch of psalms in the notes. I think David was obsessive compulsive, ADD, depressed. I mean, I think I put in parentheses depression. There's a psalm that he wrote that I think David was experiencing depression. The depth of angst and sorrow and all of that, that we can give to God as an expression of worship. It's not going to surprise him. Our anger... Our depression, our frustration, it's not going to take him off guard. And he receives and welcomes that. Because what are we doing? We are trusting him with the most troublesome, difficult moments of our life and still giving him that. Because we want to outpour there instead of taking that trouble and outpouring it to something else that we think will find relief. As an act of worship, give God your heartache. And finally, I uh, included... Christian worship is the process of steadily growing in seeing God and salvation in his son, Jesus Christ, as the single greatest source of pleasure in life. The reason I wrote that the last time we talked about uh, worship is because I think at least the challenge I face is this idea of the enormous amount of ways that you and I can find pleasure in the world today. You know, whether it's on the phone, on the computer, at a movie. I mean, you know, all that stuff in and of itself is not bad. And there's a lot of bad stuff out there that we need to avoid because we want to worship God through obedience in his word. But there are a gazillion ways for us to find pleasure in in our culture. You know, and and think of it, you know, for, I mean, my life, a lot of times I'm in this position, looking at my phone or iPad with my head bowed, focusing right here. Facebook, Twitter, Fox News, you know, whatever. I mean, think of that position, bowing down, just staring at this thing, you know. And even if it's not giving me pleasure, so to speak, I'm still just focused on this, you know. So Christian worship, which is acceptable to God, is steadily growing in seeing God and salvation in Christ. That's the single greatest source of pleasure. Don't go to church to worship. Bring your worship to church. Let's pray and lift up our voices to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for our time together this morning. We thank you, God, that you want us to live lives that are whole and complete. Not fractured and not shattered, but you want us to live lives that have integrity so that everything that we do, everything that we say, the people that you've given us to love, the tragedies and heartache in our life, God, you call us to offer ourselves to you. Father, you call us to bring to you as an act of worship all the things that are in our lives that we might find delight and the truest source of joy and pleasure in you and not in this world which is passing away, fading away, and will not last. So we pray and ask that you would help us to find our delight in you and in you alone, even as we delight in your name and song in these moments. We pray and ask in Christ's name, Amen.